You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's only talk radio show focused on exploring topics of interest to women in business with your host, Dr. Sean Andrews. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Critical Mass Radio Show. I am Dr. Sean Andrews. Uh, This radio show focuses on women and business. So thank you very much for tuning in and listening in. So I'm pleased today to have to be interviewing uh, April Young Bennett. April is Associate Director at Utah Science, Technology and Research. And she's also an activist fighting for gender equality on a wide range of fronts, including her popular religious feminism podcast. In writing her powerful book, Ask a Suffragist, Stories and Wisdom from America's First Feminists, which is the first in a series of books on the historical women's right leaders, she sought to explore what enabled these pioneers to succeed against great odds and how that could inform her own activism. April poses the question, what can they teach us today? So with that, April, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Fantastic. So I really look forward to this conversation. Uh, your, your book sounds fantastic, and uh, I would actually like to know what they could teach us today as well. So uh, let's just start off. Uh, let me ask you, uh, tell us about your professional path to where you are today. Certainly. When I first started in the workforce, I was working in the public health sector, and public health is basically a little bit of everything, all sorts of things. So you sort of have to find your niche. And I found that I was good with data, and I was also good on TV. I was good at publicity. And so I ended up doing more of those two things and less of things I didn't love as much, which included things like um, monitoring contracts. I really hated that. (laughs) Um, So I ended up doing more and more. When they were looking for somebody to appear on the radio or appear on TV, I volunteered for that. When they were looking for somebody to oversee a study, a research study, I would volunteer for that. And eventually I was doing more and more of those things that I really enjoyed. And after a while of working in public health, I broadened my path a little bit. I joined a nonprofit that was lobbying for public health issues, but also other issues like education and gender equity. And that was exciting because I found that I really did enjoy lobbying. It combined many of the things I already liked in my public health work, working with data, um, working with the media, but it also added something I was passionate about, which was changing policy. Hmm. And I did that for quite some time. And now I am working, well, professionally, I'm kind of got two paths going on. My day job, I work with scientists and engineers and help them to get funding for new inventions so that they can change the world in that way with technology. And by night and by weekends, I am an author. And this entire time, I've been an activist, not getting paid by anyone, but (laughs) changing the world in my own way. So... As an activist, I've worked with many different activist organizations that (laughs) plan marches, organize people, try to change laws, try to change policies, especially within religious communities. Mm. And I have a podcast, the Religious Feminism Podcast, that talks with many different people from different faith communities that are working to make their faith communities more equitable. And like you mentioned, I just released a book, Stories and Ask a Suffragist, Stories and Wisdom from America's First Feminists 
which really delves into what we can learn about activism from, well, the women who started it all. Now, is this your first book, April? This is my first book. I'm not new to writing, though. I've actually been blogging since 2011 about gender equity issues, and so this is my first long-form project, (laughs) but I've been writing for the public for a long time. Well, congratulations on your first book, And, and when did this launch? This launched on June 4th, which happens to be the anniversary of when the 19th Amendment was passed by Congress. Oh. 100th anniversary. Fantastic. Well, so this is this is hot off the presses. That's right. Excellent, excellent. So, so you have a really interesting background at, at sitting at the intersection of the science, uh, your media experience, and and your activism work. So, uh, tell me a little bit more about your work as an activist and an advocate for gender equality. Absolutely. That began several years ago. It began mostly within my own faith community. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. People commonly refer to us as Mormons. Mm -hmm. And I love my faith. I love my faith community. But one big problem with it is is that it is very patriarchal. Um, We have a male-only priesthood. And not only that, not only do we only ordain men to the ministry, but we ordain every male member of our church to the ministry as soon as they turn 12. So the result is that every male member of our church outranks every female member. Hmm. And so it is concerning. It leads to lots of negative side effects. And I started being concerned about that several years ago, started raising my voice on that issue, started blogging about that issue as soon as I encountered other women and other groups that were concerned about this. Hmm. A few years after I started blogging, I helped begin an activist organization called Ordain Women, where we organized demonstrations and marches and campaigns to encourage our church leaders to ordain women to the ministry that received a lot of national attention and a lot of negative attention from our local church leaders, Hmm. as can be expected. But it was a great opportunity to raise my voice and actually use some of those skills that I had garnered over the years through my work experience, learning how to talk with the media for a cause that I really cared about. Mm. Now, and how has that been going? Have you finding that there's a, there's a lot of other women that are part of your cause? Or are you, or, uh, I should say... Are you coming with resistance still, or are you, are you finding that people are more accepting of, of your message and what you're trying to do? It's a long-term project. Mm-hmm. I don't anticipate that my church is going to ordain women anytime soon, but then that's another thing about knowing your history, is I know that most of these big changes were long-term projects. And a nice thing about learning the history, like you look at the suffrage movement, it started about 100 years before the 19th Amendment. And even after the 19th Amendment passed, there were still women who, even though they were technically supposed to have voting rights, couldn't vote because of discriminatory laws based on race or ethnicity. So it took even longer after that before these women gained the right to vote. So you look at the history and you see some projects take a really long time, but you also learn how to see the progress along the way. You learn how to see how there's these incremental changes that happen because people are are advocating for that one big change that they really care about. And that's what I'm seeing a lot within my religious community. 
we still don't ordain women. I still believe we should. And we're still fighting for that. But there have been lots of other incremental changes that have happened along the way, I believe, as a result of us raising our voices and raising attention to the issue of equality between men and women within our faith. And I'm really excited about these smaller incremental change that have ha- changes that have happened along the way. Fantastic. I guess with any movement or worthy cause, it's always baby steps, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. There's always baby steps. That said, you shouldn't always just ask for baby steps. Sometimes it's just best to ask for what you actually want. (laughs) And maybe all you'll get is baby steps. But if you ask for what you actually want, I think that brings you closer even to accomplishing those incremental changes than if you only ask for the bare minimum. Yes. Yeah, it's a great point. So, so April, some of the questions that you posed in your book, Ask a Suffragist, I was also interested in knowing, uh, hearing your perspectives and your insights based on your research. So uh, some of those questions is, how do we break the glass ceiling for women who aspire to leadership? Absolutely. When I was reading this, it was kind of exciting to see. These were early career women that I was reading about, in particular, opening up the field of medicine to women. Mm -hmm. In my book, I talk about the first medical doctors in the United States back in the 1840s, 1850s. And this was at a time when women, many colleges didn't allow women to attend at all, and certainly not medical schools. And so the wage gap, it was more of a wage gorge. Not only could women, was there a wage gap that women weren't being paid as much, a lot of times they weren't allowed to enter the profession at all. And so they really had a lot to overcome, and it's kind of exciting to see the different strategies they took to make that happen. One of the first people I talk about in my book is Harriet Hunt. And Harriet Hunt was not admitted to medical school, although she tried. She tried to gain admittance, and she was refused because she was a woman. What she did was she found a different path. She got into medicine through apprenticeship. She found someone who was willing to let her be an apprentice, and she learned that way. And when she still couldn't, even after gaining all of this knowledge through apprenticeship, she tried to get into school. They still wouldn't let her in. It kind of motivated her and kind of made a fire within her where it became her life work to open the field of medicine to women. And so even as she was practicing at her own health clinic, where she had gained the knowledge through apprenticeship, she was fighting for other women, younger women, who were entering the profession to be allowed into medical schools. And she did it in many different ways. She attended women's rights conventions, where she organized women to fight for women to be allowed to enter schools for co-education, basically. And she went around to different cities, and she formed physiological societies, where she taught women about their bodies. It was kind of like basically intro public health work. I told you I used Mm. to work in public health. Mm -hmm. She was doing that before that was normal. (laughs) And it was kind of a strange thing to do to teach women about how their own bodies work, but it was something that women needed to know and that they weren't getting that knowledge in their schools. And so she went around doing that, and some of these physiological societies got so excited about the work she was doing that they worked with her to start college funds for women who wanted to attend medical school. And so she actually, even though she never got the opportunity to attend, she started medical funds that funded other women to go to medical school and become doctors. And so it's because of her that many uh, many women did start entering the profession. And, that, and that's uh, about what time period was that? 
That was in the 1840s. Wow, 1840s. So today, for for women um, who who maybe aspire to leadership, and we know that not all women you know, want to get into leadership, but certainly for those who do, um, there is a glass ceiling in place for some. And so do you think those types of activities would apply to women today uh, who are aspiring for leadership roles? Yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from what Harriet Hunt did. First of all, she wasn't stuck on one path. Mm. When the one obvious choice, go to medical school, didn't work out for her, she looked around and, and looked for what other options are out there. Another is that she organized other women, and, mm-hmm. and not necessarily around the issue to begin with of getting women into medical school. Well, she did organize them around the issue. She organized them around a related issue, learning about your own health, learning how to take care of your own body, what your own body does, and incrementally started teaching them about the need for women to be allowed into medical school and started garnering support for that issue. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's something that we can do, too. Just look around and say, okay, maybe people aren't totally accepting of this right now, but what else could I do to lead them on that path? And one thing that I love about Harriet is I love how she paid it forward. Even though Mm -hmm. she was never admitted to medical school, she mentored other younger women. She helped them to fund their medical education, and she made the world a much better place. And I just Mm -hmm. think that's something you can always do. Yeah, what an inspiring story. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm, I'm curious that, so in your, uh, again, in your research and your, in your, uh, your beliefs, what are men's roles in the feminist movement? And I'm assuming it has changed from, uh, from the early days, but um, how do you see current men's role currently? You know, it hasn't changed as much as you would think. One thing about the privilege of being a man in our society is that it's less likely that you're encountering some of these barriers that women are encountering, and you can use that privilege for good, which is what many early feminists did. Many of the first feminists in America were men, men like William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass. Hmm. And these men, they were welcome in places that the women weren't simply because they were women. And so they used that opportunity, that chance that they had to sit at a table where women were present to demand that women be admitted as well. And that's something that men can still do today. If you're invited, for example, to speak on a panel and you look at the agenda and see that it's going to be an all-male panel, you can raise your voice. You can, you're in a good position to do that because they invited you, they, they called you, they contacted you. You can say, are there any women we can add to this? And you can suggest some women to add to this. You can actually use that privilege that you have to bring women in with you. So advocacy being one big area. Right. Another is amplifying women's voices. This is something that is a strategy that William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass used back then. It's something that we still need men to do today. There still is a tendency, and there's been lots of studies that show that in the workplace, women will be interrupted more often than men. They're more likely to have, say, a majority of men in a room and fewer women, maybe a token woman instead of a a complete group of women. And sometimes women's voices are just not heard in these kind of settings where they're so greatly outnumbered or where people are interrupting them as we tend to do in our society more often towards women than men. And so this is a place where if you are a man in one of those settings, you can amplify a woman's voice. If you hear her make a good suggestion, simply repeating it is often very helpful. Say something like, 
I love how so-and-so said that we should do this. She has a great idea. We should all listen to her. I hope that someday we don't need men to do that for women to be listened to. But in the meantime, it's a great thing that you can do to be a good ally for women. Yeah, well, and actually, I think all of us should be advocating for each other because, you know, we're all... Uh, we're all connected in some sense. And so, uh, you know, male, female, regardless of your background, race, ethnicity, uh, religion, uh, whatever, you know, the more that we, I think, help and support each other as a human race, uh, you, you know, um, rising tide lifts all boats. So uh, advocacy certainly, you know, is great for, for, for men helping women to in the leadership ranks. But uh, I was just thinking as you were talking that, uh, sure, it would sure be nice if we acted that way for everybody. Absolutely. And as women, we need to support each other. Yes, absolutely. That's a big piece of it, too. (laughs) When we talk about bias, often we assume that we're talking about, when we talk about sexism and sexist bias, a lot of times we assume we're talking about men being sexist against women. Mm -hmm. But those things that I'm talking about, about interrupting women, not paying attention to women, those biases aren't restricted to men. Women do it to other women also. A lot of times we've just been trained to listen to a male voice and to give deference to a male voice in a way that we don't towards other women like ourselves. And so that's something that we need to train ourselves not to do, and we need to check ourselves and make sure that we are supporting other women and we are amplifying their voices as well. Yes, absolutely. So so given your experience, April, uh, uh, being raised in the uh, uh, the LDS Church and, and Mormon um, in your opinion, is religion compatible with a modern feminist movement? Religion does two great things for activists. I say religion makes activists in two different ways. One is that religious faith inspires women. I, as the host of the Religious Feminism podcast and as an activist who has been involved in very many faithful feminist actions, I've met so many women who were inspired to become activists because of their faith, because within their religion, they learned about and learned to care about right and wrong, and they learned to care about making the world a better place. They gained a certain optimism that you need to be an activist to actually believe that it's possible to change the world. And these are qualities that came grew out of their faith. If you look back in history, you see the same thing. There's women like Sojourner Truth, who was a woman of faith, and she credits her faith for causing her to become an activist, because it inspired her so much. Hmm. That said, many religions, including my own, are patriarchal, meaning that leadership positions are held almost exclusively by men. And this is an extreme frustration for women, and also a driver towards activism. If every Sunday you're treated in a way that is so different from how you're treated the rest of the week, that gnaws at you. It begins to bother you, and it gets to cause people to want to make change. And so in both ways, women are driven towards activism because of their faith communities. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like it's it's a bit of both um, about the compatibility. It sounds like on one sense... Uh, the inspiration, the optimism that that you get from whatever your religion may be, uh, can inspire you to be an act uh, t- towards activism. But on the other hand, um, you know, you 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 live the discord. You know, you experience the the, the difference in treatment. Uh, so, I would think that Which would be also um, inspires yeah. activism because if you haven't experienced 
experienced inequity, then it's hard to get really worked up about it, right. <laughs> really care right. about it. But if you're witnessing it on a regular basis, say every Sunday, then it really gives you something to think about and something that you'll want to change. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic perspective on it. So April, what advice would you offer women who are in business today? I would tell them that they should have hope. Like I said, activists are optimists, and I'm one of them. I am very Mm -hmm. optimistic. If you look back at the history, you can see how far we've come, and we really have come far. Sometimes when I talk about all the problems that we encounter now, people are like, oh, yeah, it hasn't gotten any better. That's not true. I can tell you it has gotten better. Mm -hmm. Things were a lot worse over 100 years ago at the time period of my book. And part of the reason they got better is because these women worked so hard to change our world, and they succeeded. It is much better. That said, the job isn't done. We still have a wage gap. We still have very many professions that are male-dominated. Within our Congress, we have more women than ever before, and yet there are only a quarter of the people there, mm. while we're half the people in our, in our country. So we're clearly not fully represented yet. So we've come a long way. We still have a way to go. Another thing I would tell people is that these are long-term projects. So you need to train yourself to see those incremental improvements and to rejoice in them because it's going to take a while to reach your end goal. Yeah. So so take the long view. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so we have a few minutes left still. Uh, let me ask you one more question. And it's one of the questions you posed uh, in the book as well. So what can the Me Too generation learn from America's first feminists or the suffragists? One of the things that I think we can take away from them is how they reached out to people that were unlike them. And they worked with people who had different backgrounds, who were racially different from them, who came from, many came from different countries. Many of these suffragists were immigrants to the United States. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason they did that is because there were so few people who believed in women's equality at the time that they had to learn how to get along with the few people who did, even if they were very different. And so a desperation, in a way, kind of brought them to find each other and learn how to work together in spite of their differences. That's also became one of their pitfalls. At times, they got to the point where different racial groups were kind of competing against each other. There were several times in the course of the suffrage movement where black men were competing for rights and white women were competing for the same right. And instead of competing against the wrong, the injustice, they started competing against each other. And so that's a pitfall that we need to look at and make sure we avoid today. Are we competing against other disadvantaged groups? We need to bring us all up together. So that's something that we can also kind of learn, take take away from our past and make sure that we don't repeat it. All right. Fantastic. So, so April, I think your research is fascinating, actually, and your, your perspective and your background is uh, adds some really interesting insights. So if someone's interested in learning more about your work or getting in touch with you, how should they go about doing that? You can visit my website, aprilyoungb.com, spelled just like it sounds, A-P-R-I-L-Y-O-U-N-G-B, as in Bennett.com. And there you can find links to my Religious Feminism podcast, my Mormon Feminist blog, The Exponent 2, and also to askasuffragist.com, where you can learn more about my book. Fantastic. And is that book uh, available on the standard channels? Is it currently available? Absolutely. It's called Ask a Suffragist, Mm -hmm. Stories and Wisdom from America's First Feminist. It's available wherever good books are sold. And like I said, if you visit askasuffragist.com, 
you'll find links to find that at your local bookstore to find the audiobook on Audible and iTunes and at Amazon and all those other wonderful outlets. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you. It's been uh, fantastic having you on the show today. Uh, and if you want to reach me, my website is drshawnandrews.com. That's D-R, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, and andrews.com. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at Dr. Sean Andrews. So through these interviews and other work, my mission is to continue to educate, inspire, and empower women in business. So I think this discussion today has helped bring some insights to that. So thank you uh, very much to April Young Bennett. And thanks all for listening. Until next time. You've been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show. Orange County's only talk radio show focused on exploring topics of interest to women in business with your host, Dr. Sean Andrews.